0: Welcome to Almost Awakened. I'm your host, Bill Real. We explore human development here, spirituality, psychedelics, sexuality, and more. Our aim, equipping you with tools for a fulfilling post religious life. This is Almost Awakened. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. Uh, I am your uh, host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today uh manda how are you doing
1: i'm doing great phil thanks
0: awesome awesome known you for a lot of years uh i definitely wanted to include you in this project i'm excited that you reached out and said you'd be interested i wonder before we jump into sort of a deep interview if you would give maybe a brief bio about yourself whatever you'd like to say and uh, jump into some questions
1: cool yeah so i am a 27 year old bisexual ex-mormon attorney so that's kind of fun. Um, born in Las Vegas, grew up in St. George, Utah, had, you know, good time down there. I grew up Mormon, served a Mormon mission at, you know, 19, super hyped to go, all of that. Um, got back. I've been married for five years, out of the church for about five to six years, and I'm pretty much digging life. i yeah. having a good time.
0: Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. So... Um... I've known you for a long time, uh, sort of on the periphery. I don't know you super well. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't like hung out for for days on end. But uh, I bumped into you enough, and, and know your family, and uh, super proud of how you've conducted your life, how you show up in the world. I know some of the lessons that you've learned, and some of the cool things that you've done. And I thought this would be a really fun chance to sit down and have a conversation. And I wonder if maybe we can start off just talking about like a pivotal moment in your life where uh, that, that significantly influenced you that changed who you were. It, it changed how you showed up in the world. It, it affected you in ways that it, it's like you got picked up from one path that you're on and sort of placed onto another and it, your thoughts there maybe on that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, my my thoughts go to returning home from my Mormon mission. I got back in 2016, actually just before the presidential election. That was a little bit of a mindfuck because um, I was very strict on my mission, obeyed the rules, didn't watch TV, any of that. <clears throat> so I get home. I'm into it. I know that the issues are more complex than what I was teaching on my mission. I served Spanish speaking, which was very limiting to me and in my ability and my vocabulary overall. Um, it prevented me from really ever engaging in too deep of conversations on my mission. And so we kept it very, very simple, very shallow plan of salvation kicks ass. Yes, let's do it. Okay. So I get home, I go to church, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm like, let's go. This is great. Let's talk about, you know, bettering ourselves, working on self-improvement, things like that. And we end up talking about the shelf life of a water bottle for 45 minutes.
2: Mormon Sunday. (laughs) school. I was
1: like, I turned to my mom and I was like, are they serious right now? Like, this is the priority. And so honestly, that moment set me on a path. Um, also coming home and, and and seeing the effects of the policy that had been put in place in 2015, seeing how that had affected queer people and queer families and th- being a closeted queer at that time. It was just very, very dissonant and, and very confusing. And so I... Kind of, I stuck around organized religion for a year or two after that, trying to advocate for the queer community and others, you know, fighting that good fight. But at one point, it just got so exhausting. I remember the last time I ever prayed, I was, you know, asking God to help with, uh, help get something done. I'm like, I really hope this goes well today. I hope, you know, whatever prep is needed, that, you know, thank you. Please, please send all your help. And I stopped halfway through the prayer and realized, wait a second, if this actually does go well for me today, that's going to be entirely on me and the efforts that I put in. And so it was that moment where I kind of realized, I don't think I have a belief in God anymore. (laughs) I think this is on me. I think my choices are actually my own. And that was kind of existential in a way, like super exciting, but also Very scary in the sense that if something goes wrong, I'm accountable. I don't blame it on the devil. I don't blame it on my lack of prayer or scripture study. I blame it on my lack of preparation for the actual task at hand. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: So, say more about that. Like, I want to know you come back from your mission, you realize that at church, they're sort of just wasting time on the things that really don't matter so it's not, far
1: off base.
0: that lesson could have been so dedicated to being christ-like and making real changes and and it's not it was on food storage and whatever else but you sort of realize at some point there isn't this bearded guy in the sky who's helping you out you're the one who sort of again we all have luck good luck and bad luck i don't mean luck sure. as in like a supernatural thing i just mean shit happens good and <laughs> bad and um But without a supernatural being up there directing the affairs of the world, you sort of have to take ownership for your life. Again, good and bad happens that it's out of your Mm -hmm. control. But also this is this life is going to be whatever you make of it. How how does that change how you think or approach the world?
1: Yeah, well it's interesting because a lot of people say, you know, when you leave organized religion, what makes you, you know, stop from just going out and killing people, which is such a far-fetched and yeah. and disconnected question obviously. But it was existential in the sense that realizing you know, in Mormonism they tout um agency and you you have these choices, but really most of your choices have been made for you and kind of guide you through your life right and so taking on the full responsibility of having to make my own decisions and also realizing that other people whether they believe in god or not are also making their own choices and not only am i accountable for my mistakes and kickassness you know other people are 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 similar in that sense so it made me a lot more angry at the organized um, leadership of not only Mormonism, but generally organized religion. I mean, it's not across the board. My belief isn't that organized religion is bad, but there's, there's too much human bias in the leadership that I can see at this point in my life, knowing that in my opinion, there's very unlikely a God or at least Mormon God up there telling these men what to do. And really, these are personal choices that they're making that greatly and deeply impact people and their families forever. And I, by forever, I mean this this life <laughs> on earth.
0: Yeah, not, not for time and all eternity. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, somewhere along the same lines when, and I don't know when it was, Five years ago, because I've been out in Southern Utah for eight years or so. And, um, it really was this moment where I left because I had joined Mormonism as a convert. Mm. I, I was the Bishop in that ward. I just had so much street cred. I really could have done whatever the heck I wanted and they would have just loved me and let me get away with it. And moving away from those people, I, I sort of had to separate friendships that had lasted essentially forever versus whether the church was useful or true in my life. And when I came out here to Southern Utah, I, I started I started to like not accept the the um in Mormonism you check boxes rather than do real life-changing work inside. And so if I do my home teaching, if I show up to church on Sunday, if I wear a white shirt and tie, I'm a good human being. Meanwhile, whether I say shitty things to my kids or shitty things to my wife or whether I think horrible thoughts about people and behave in ways that are less than sincere, that's not important to being a good Latter Day Saint. And uh, when I came out to Southern Utah, I started to really be sincere about looking in the mirror and confronting like my unhealthiness and saying like I don't I don't want a free pass anymore. I want to really be responsible for who I am and how I show up in the world. And I found that when I set religion off to the side, similar to what you're saying, when I set religion off to the side, I became accountable and responsible for who I was. I could no longer make excuses because the religion said, Oh yeah, don't worry about doing real life changing work. Just do your, you know, do your home teaching and you'll be great. Um, I started to really take seriously who I was and what was going on inside. And it sounds like you did the same. Like once you got to sort of step away from religion, you said like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the creator of this incredible life that I'm going to make
1: yeah wow. honestly, no, that's really on point. It's interesting because I went on my mission pretty nuanced. I know I, I we grew up very in, in my household it was very honest. We would pause conference to talk about you know questions we had or where that might rub us wrong, you know, things like that. So I went on my mission. I said in my farewell talk that I'm not going out to make more Mormons, which there was like a <gasps> in the crowd type of thing. <laughs> when I said that, but honestly, that wasn't my goal. i Thrived on my mission um, under the 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 layer of toxic positivity. In my opinion, mm. I actually extended my mission by thirty days and stayed as like a specialized sister training leader who went around and you know trained in depth all of these other missionaries, sister missionaries that needed help. And my my president, my mission president, kind of used me as a pseudo therapist for them, and I I loved that role. I really did. And I made so many friends in my mission. But similar to what you're saying, once I decided to step away, I actually did post publicly on Facebook, um, announcing that I had decided to step away primarily because of the, the issues with the queer community within the church, but also the harm done without any responsibility acknowledged. And I literally watched my followers, not that I care about my follower count, but I watched my followers dwindled Mm out. I lost about 10 to 15 that first month. And pretty much anytime I posted something critical of the church or something about a a process that I was going through or learning, I would lose more and more. And I had mission companions that I would have considered my best friends reach out to me and say, Hey, I just want to let you know that I will always be inviting you back and praying for you. And I just thought that's really sad, actually, that that's your approach. I mean, I understand that that's what you understand. Conceptualizes help and and you know authenticity for you, but I've made clear that that this is something I'm stepping away with, and it makes me sad that as my friend you prioritize the organized religion that we want shared over what I have personally asked, which is for space and love and friendship. I, I didn't want to lose friends when I announced that I was leaving religion, but I inevitably did, and. It's sad to lose them, but at the same time, I, I know that it's kind of a, a transitionary period of my life where if some friends don't make it through that that journey with me, I, I guess that's okay. You know? And it's hard, it's bittersweet.
0: Yeah. I we were just talking to friends last night and there was uh um Making friends in the church is like having friends as a five-year-old. You know, you'd be in the sandbox, you know, I'm a boy, you're a boy, hey. I like baseball, you like baseball, <laughs> we should be best friends, right? And, yeah. and church is like, I'm going to be a good Mormon, you're going to be a good Mormon, we're going to do all these outward signals that we're, that we're killing this Mormon thing on the plan of salvation, and therefore we should be good friends. And once I left, I realized that I don't really want friends that are just like me, that's just not very interesting, I want I want friends who are different in all kinds of ways. And yeah. I find that that makes the relationship intriguing. And I think really caring about somebody, you have to care about who they really are, not that they match up with you in terms of how you believe or what you're yeah. interested in. So it makes sense that uh, as time goes on, I've experienced the same thing as I've spoken up about my truth, the folks that I used to consider the dearest of friends in the church that I thought even if I leave, they would still be my friend. They, they're they gone. They just, they stepped away. And sometimes more than that, they publicly criticized me, the human, mm-hmm. rather than uh, have a dialogue about the thing that we disagree on, which was whether the church was true or, or whether it was good. Um, You know, having come from a Mormon mission, I'm sure you saw some of this here, but I'm sure you've seen it just in Mormonism generally. But there's, there's a high propensity among the leadership to have policies and procedures that manipulate people to get people to do what you need them to do to pay their tithing and to be loyal and obedient, not to criticize leaders. Even if the criticism is true as elder Oaks has told us not to do. And I find that when people are you know, manipulated, it's, it's never good for people in, in terms of how they process that, how they feel. I'm just curious if you've ever had an instance where, Um, you've, you've observed religious manipulation and what happened in that situation. And maybe if somebody was able to sort of break free of that.
1: Yeah. It's very interesting. Practicing family law here in Utah. I will say that I it, it's been very interesting coming back to Utah. I went to school out in Massachusetts, thought I would be there for 20 years because I needed all the space in the world from Utah, decided to come back and and help my community, even though Mormonism is no longer my community, Utah still is. And as somebody who has left organized religion, I know that I bring a very unique perspective to mm. the area and the practice. And so it has been heartbreaking and equally heartwarming at times speaking with clients on where they're at with religion and how that plays a part in like, their divorce or their, you know, custody matter or whatever we're dealing with. And it's just, I was speaking with one client a while back and he was telling me, he he was really bummed that he was getting divorced. He, he, he did not want it. Mom wanted it. Um, And he was just had to go along because you have a right to get divorced um, in Utah, at least. And so he was telling me that he met his wife at BYU. They were both, you know, they met at Institute or something. And he had an interest in another girl at the time. But this woman in particular, the woman he ended up marrying, felt like she was going to be a good general authority's wife. Mm. And that's why he chose her rather than the girl that he had more in common with, mm. he had more fun with. That's up, and it's so fucked up. Yeah. And to be here 15 years later with several kids in the picture now, and it didn't work out, he's not a general authority and she's not a general authority's wife. It just, but that indoctrination just had itself entangled all the way until the end and he even still he let me know he had distanced himself from the church but it was so so interesting to sit there as he looked at his life in retrospect and why he had made the choices he did and how honestly I I mean I don't know if I could say regret on his behalf but it that's the message that he was communicating that it would have been nice if he had felt like he could choose somebody that he actually got along with rather than the woman who appeared as though she was going to be the better general authority's wife, because that's the standard we have or we're taught.
0: It's a, it's a shitty situation, right? Like the world doesn't do perfect at raising us to (laughs) be healthy human beings. Like the, my public school education fucked up too. It wasn't just (laughs) <laughs> um, so we can't lay all of it at the feet of, of the religious unhealthy religious systems, but it seems like the normal way to find your life partner. If you want a life partner, If you don't want one, like don't, don't have one, but if you want a life partner, it seems like the easiest way. The science shows that people who should date like 17 people before they know who they are and who they know, and, and before they know what they want in some other person, what yeah. they want the skill set to be and the flaws to be and what they can deal with and not deal with. And in Mormonism it's like no 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 no. Any two people can make it if you have the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center. Uh don't date for very long, get married really young, have lots of children right away. It is all of the entrapments to trap you into a relationship that you would have never gotten yourself into to begin with, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But it's gonna it, it is most it's it's a good recipe to have the best chance at having a lonely, unconnected life with the person that you're married to.
1: Yeah. Having the goal to have that spiritual threesome they recommended a few years yeah. ago. It just yeah. invites, you know, if you're looking for that intimacy and that real connection, that's it's hard if there's some other presence there that's commanded to be there yeah honestly I it's it's really interesting working in divorce and I like I said I'm currently married been married for five years it's going pretty well mm-hmm. um but a few a, a while back he asked me my spouse asked me and he's like hey so you deal with divorce like all day every mm-hmm. day like should we talk about that and it's been helpful in my own relationship in the sense that divorce is now a very objective thing for me it's something that i do deal with all day every day pretty much right. and it it allows me and my my spouse to have very open conversations about mm-hmm. what would lead us there and what would help us avoid that you know and there's always possible that divorce is on the table and from what i've seen i've seen couples who have been together for 45 years and are now in their late 80s and deciding to get divorced before they end of the life because that's what will bring them joy and that sounds so sad and it mm. is so sad to watch mm. but i also am honored to be part of helping young people get divorced i'm all for marriage if it works out and you're in a healthy relationship i want to make that clear but if divorce is something you think you need, you should probably talk about it. And maybe that's what you need. Maybe you were good for each other for a couple of years, maybe not. And But when it comes time to separate, I really am honored to be part of that journey for people. I know it's stressful and scary and sad and sometimes happy. And it's just such a messy process. And to be able to, to help somebody go through that Get out of that situation for better or worse, sometimes, and to help them move on with their life is it's an honor, honestly. And to do so with my own priorities in mind and having things go amicably without mudslinging, if possible. You know, I love litigation, I love fighting in court, but I know that's usually not the best option for clients if we can avoid that. And so, oh, it's messy, man, but I love it.
0: What, what are some of the things, as if someone who's married for 26 years? I love my wife dearly, and like relationships are hard. Um, yeah. What are your two cents on what are the things that generally cause divorce? And what are some of the things that maybe help people to make it last?
1: Yeah, funny. Um, great questions. In my experience, limited experience, I'll say I've been practicing for just over a year now. So, Plenty. I, you know, I've had about a hundred clients at this point who have come and gone and, um, met with a lot more in consultations and honestly talking about it, like people who have been married for a long time or even a few, you know, just a couple of years talking about the issues And addressing them as they come up and not waiting and hoping that they're going to change and hoping that it will go away or hoping that the problem will resolve itself. It just, in my experience, it just doesn't if you don't address it. And it's hard, but just because a conversation is hard to have definitely doesn't mean it's not worth having. And it's sad to see... funny because a lot of people will say you know well we were dating and then we got pregnant so we got married and we thought we could make it work because we have a kid now but that's one other thing I would say please don't get married just because you have a kid I mean unless you think that that's what's good for you mm-hmm. it's it's sad to see how many why children or are, are why every so many people stay together mm-hmm. um and and yes divorce does have a, an intense effect on kids obviously but sometimes the, the the positives can outweigh the negatives and vice versa.
2: So, open, so talking
1: about it. I would highly recommend open open communication, yeah. whether that's about possibly needing a divorce or not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just like lay stuff on the table, talk about it as it is and deal with it because pretending it's not there, hiding it away, wearing your mask, it's
1: it's not there, going,
0: man. It doesn't make anybody feel better. It's just no. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Just um, delays
1: it. Yeah.
0: So another question here is to talk about myth for a moment. You and I both know, I, you know, I. I the stories have been told in your household about how <laughs> all, of, all of it's made up and there's so much importance to myth. I mean, myth does bind people together. We We know from like books like Sapiens that, Myth is really an integral part to a large group of people working together for the perpetuation of the society. And big tribes kill small tribes. And so the big tribes with the best myths win. And you can see that even today. I mean, look at the countries that pose the greatest threats, the countries that have the best ability to thwart those threats. Uh, There's certain myths that bind everyone together to think they're the good guys fighting up against Mm -hmm. the. And I think myth, again, myth is useful. and when we go to the we go to the movie theaters and we watch, uh, uh, you know, Captain Marvel or Spider-Man, and we know that those aren't real characters, and we know also that the lessons about good and evil are of value to us. Most of us got our perception of good and evil from watching cartoons as a kid or television and and these characters don't need to be real to convey that. But somehow, in the world of religion, Myth stories are really quickly made to be literal stories that we all have to believe in absolutely. Abraham really did try to take his kid up onto the mountain and kill him, you know? (laughs) And that doesn't seem to, I mean, it seems to work, and there might be a degree of uh, coherence among the people, but it also passes along a lot of ideas that are bad judgment calls, you know, that you you should let your daughter you should compel your daughter to marry her rapist if the rapist pays you for the trauma he imparted. It's ridiculous. And so any ideas around how to make use of myth without it needing to be believed literally and maybe what, what it would take for religion to begin to distance itself from imposing myth as literal for it to work.
1: Oof, those are very big questions. It is. Um, it's interesting to see. I mean, in one sense, as Sapiens, the book Sapiens points out, law is a myth. Law is just something that we've decided on and we all just agreed to adhere to. Right. And so in one sense. At law school, oh boy, let me tell you about the myths we talk about there. You know, we're talking about case law from the 1800s that doesn't even stand anymore, but that has that has led to the law that is in place today. Sometimes that's very gross to talk about because it's so antiquated. But in the sense of religion, these myths that are that are used to create this unified body, like you were saying, the large tribe generally prevails. And so having these unifying myths um, is productive for sure, whether you're a, a business corporation or a religion, right? But to see how how people take these myths and take them steps farther than even, I probably than even the, the, the leaders of whatever organization even intend. And to see how that just Deeply affects their lives and their choices they're making. And, you know, one specific example of that is why somebody might stay in their marriage because they've internalized this sense of shame or responsibility that has been communicated to them as what I would say is a general myth or, you know, gender norms, whatever you want to call it. But it's used to keep people in their place. And so to, to, address that is is really hard if the person who is is in and not to say i don't have my own myths that i follow but the myths that stem from the organized religion that stem from a level of coercion and intended coercion Mm -hmm. and to see how that trickles through and just seeps into people's lives even further than what might have been intended is it's it's sad to watch and and i It's funny because as an attorney, I I have a responsibility to not try to be a therapist. I was on track to be a therapist before I, I switched to being a lawyer. And sometimes when people start talking about their perceptions and things like that, I just woof, I think whoever and whatever that I am, you know, morally obligated to stay in the objective with my clients and not try to go to those places. But at the same time, in my position of, You know, generally people trust their attorneys, hopefully. And I hope that I have that relationship with my clients. And so trying to suggest things or pose questions to them that might allude to the fact that what they have internalized for years, if not decades, is a myth. And that is something that they can overcome and that, you know, isn't real, no matter how real it is to them. And so it's a very delicate balance. Um and again, I, I I feel a lot of privilege being in this position of power in a lot of people's lives and and having that perspective of of myth and and knowing and acknowledging the myth because that's myth can be helpful. Um, but it's important to acknowledge it, even if you continue to follow that myth. And and again, it's in my experience, I just it, it can be really difficult to have or help somebody acknowledge the myth as such, yeah. if they're, you know, still clinging onto it really, really tightly.
0: Yeah. It, but something magical does happen when somebody begins to realize that almost everything is made up. It's all myth. Like, uh, <laughs> like the United States of America and the line between it and Mexico. Right. It's an arbitrary construct that we agreed to. And are the people on each side of the line, how much different from each other are they? And it, is it, are those differences sort of man-made as well, rather than something that we're born uh, to think about? By the way, I got a question for you, or at least maybe a, a point to make that tied to your family law, it, you made me think of it when you said like a lot of our laws are sort of based in this uh these Christian myths and they're mm-hmm. not all good too. And you said like in law school, some of these would be really gross. And I'll just say like, You go back to the 1800s and still today to some extent, but you go back to the 1800s and some of these states had on the books, uh, you know, the average age of marriage or not the average age, but the lowest age of marrying was like 14 years old, for instance. And I was thinking one day, I'm like, I don't think the government officials made 14 the lowest age of marriage because they were worried about 14 year olds and 15 year olds having sex. It seems to me that having on the books of the age of 14 allowed grown men to then marry 14-year-old women without – 14-year-old girls without being in trouble with the law.
1: Yeah. If you take a step back from it, you can really pretty much see what's going on. Yeah. what I was talking about in the beginning, you know, taking accountability for myself and my own actions and choices also helped me realize – the choices that people and generally men in positions of power Mm -hmm. are making for the general population, whether that be through, you know, the Mormon church, another Christian organized religion or the U S government and other, you know, other governments, state, local, whatever, but the personal bias that goes into it and there's so much effort put in, by you know the government or whoever to 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 communicate that this is good this is of course this is normal here's why they give you like a um a distraction they say you know this is why we're doing it so that 14 and 50 year olds don't have sex but really like sure that is a consequence of of the law sure but why was that put in place? Why really? What is the driving?
0: Year old have sex. Who's going to get punished anyway? Like if a 13, if 14 year old is the legal line and a 13 year old and a 15 year old have sex, what's the pun? Like, that's not real. What's real no. is when grown men are, want to sleep with children <sighs> and they don't want to go to prison. So then the unhealthiest among us, and as you point out, usually men, End up in positions of being able to make the laws and then they collectively decide like, hey, nod nod, wink, wink, 14's yeah. gonna be the line.
1: Yeah, like all their buds just scheming yeah. this out.
0: It's gross. it's pretty gross. It's icky.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's you know, the ignorance is bliss is 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 definitely real. You know, it'd be kind of nice to not be able to see all that in, in the inner workings of pretty much everything we interact with every day, but cause it's exhausting to, to see the bias and to see how that actually, you know, if you're in the right position of power, how you can make your goals happen mm. if you have the right lobbyists or whoever on your side, you know, and it just, ugh.
0: like it's, there was it's hard to like 1870 and I'm trying to picture myself sitting around with these other, grown men in positions of power and as the conversation happens about what the law should be around age of consent or marriage and to hear grown men go no 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 I I I think it should be uh you know 14 well 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 Senator Johnson I feel like 13 would be a better number you know and and the reality is that Anybody, I, I would like to go back and go, I want to do a, some data checking on the folks that decided 14 was the age. I would like to know what were the ages of their wives? Who do they marry? Because I have this hunch that the unhealthiest among us who want to manipulate and abuse and break rules of healthy consent and informed consent put themselves in positions to be able to work around that – I always tell this joke on here. People have heard it way too many times, but Louis CK says, he goes, I'm not saying every Scoutmaster is a pedophile. What I might be saying is that the best ones are. And and he's right. Like anytime I'm going to let my kid go into the woods with a stranger, a stranger man. And that stranger man goes, no, no, no. I, I love children. I love other people. I want to take that kid into the woods and I want to teach him. How to start a fire? <laughs> Old me would have been like, "You go get him, Scoutmaster." New me goes, "Oh shit!" Like, I don't. Ooh, that he might be one of them. You know,
1: red flag. You might as well. You know, probably should investigate that whether or not it, it. It. You know. Yeah. Substantiates, but that red flag is very helpful.
0: And we've only just started doing background checks on these guys. You know, like it's only recent. <laughs> We're like. We probably shouldn't just let them without any testing, without any questions asked or backgrounds checked. We we yeah. sh- should probably, you know, like years ago, we just said, nah, send the stranger out there. I don't want them. Like, I better off with him than with me. Just send him out there. It, and I again we didn't plan to talk about this, but I'm I'm sure you ran into you know, I don't need you to remember any, but just maybe a yes or a no. And if you do remember some, fine. In school and in, in your college, you're you're going getting your education in law. You had to have so many times seen how the law works and it being based in like Christian rules. And you going like, mm, I don't really think that's the best way to do this. But that's what we do because that's, that's the only lens we saw through.
1: Yeah, I will definitely agree with that. And honestly, I don't know. At what my future looks like you know like I said I'm 27 I'm a year into my law career I don't know what my future looks like but one possible future reality for me is is definitely working on the legislature mm. to, to help with the laws here in Utah and honestly mm. I would say my opinion of family law in Utah is is pretty good right now I mean we got some some issues here and there but it is nice to be working in a, in a field where it there are a lot of attorneys and 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 otherwise people in the community working to get rid of historical biases here Mm -hmm. in utah and there's always going to be a human human bias when you're working with judges and commissioners and things like Mm -hmm. that but it is refreshing to be able to tell a dad that i'm meeting with that yeah the court has worked really hard to understand that mom is not the default better caretaker for the kids Mm -hmm. Some cases, yes, that's true, but some cases, no. And we need to not have that default expectation. We need to have both people come on their merits as parents and, and have that conversation type of thing.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: but it, it, it's it's tough, though, because I, you know, I, I communicate that these efforts have been made and, and they've written those biases out of the law. They used to be written into the law. That there's an assumption that mom's a better caretaker and that dad has this burden to prove that he can Mm. be a good parent and that's honestly ridiculous um but at the same time it's hopeful but there's still this human bias when we end up in front of the judges or commissioners and depending on who they are i was in court when i was in school back in massachusetts i i was a student attorney under one of the rules out there and i went to court with a client who it wasn't a very, very bad situation. We were we represented mom. There were a couple of kids involved and the, the judge was a woman. And so I, I had higher hopes in her understanding of the complexity of domestic violence and the situation at hand. But she broed right up with the other attorney and made a ruling that was completely out of procedure. She mm-hmm. wasn't supposed to do that. She did whatever the hell she wanted because it's a bros club. And to see that bias <sighs> directly affect people in their situations when the the, the 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 tables are, you know, they're stacked against them or whatever that saying is. But then to have human bias come in at the last second and, and fuck them over still. Mm. Oof.
0: Yeah, I can That's- imagine. It does seem like the old way of doing things, the systemic biases protected child predators. We talked about that protected uh, those sexual abusers protects uh, sort of the white crime over, you know, white collar crime over blue collar crime. There seems to be a, a deep divide so that if you're in a position of power the laws have been created to protect you a little more generally
2: mm-hmm. than
0: people creating a different whole category of crime and which one's worse or which one's better. Um, it is strange how we've divided those lines. Um, yeah. In terms of reality, one of the things I always love to play around with in conversations is reality. Uh, you won't, you, I'm, I'm guessing you won't know this person. Maybe you do, but there's a guy by the name of Donald Hoffman. I've mentioned him here on the podcast before, but, he makes the argument that whatever reality is, even us humans aren't seeing it. We think we are. We're like, no, like I look around, I see the table, I see the, you know, I see the lights behind me, I see, I see the, uh, you know, the picture on the wall, I know what it is, that's a made of a wood frame, that's a piece of glass, but what he argues is that we all intuitively understand that every other species of animal sees through their eyes, perceives their surroundings differently than us. Cats and dogs are an easy one to point to, right? Cats see in like green and yellow, and dogs see in black and white or something. And we also realize that cats and dogs pick up on things with their senses that we don't. So inevitably, if we sit with it for a moment, we realize, like, oh, there, there is almost certainly things in my surrounding that I don't see. And there are other things in my surroundings that I see but might actually be different than how i see them. And i'm and i'm not necessarily getting to that kind of crazy idea of reality, but i want to i want to ask in terms of like your reality, have you had moments where you've sort of had things happen where you've had to question that the world doesn't work the way you thought it did. And we've talked about some of that already, or that your reality maybe isn't what you think it is and you had to make some sort of uh, adjustment.
1: That's an interesting question. There's not a specific experience that comes to mind, but my general understanding of reality is is definitely become a lot more subjective in the in in years since leaving organized religion. In the sense that I don't know what's going on. I'm I'm not going to claim that I'm the person who understands what reality is, but in my perspective, I can affect the reality around me mm. with. You know that being my own biases, that being my own opinions, things like that. But also, whether reality is real or not, i my perceptive my perception of interacting with these people is is real to me. And so making choices based on not an afterlife, not a premortal life, not the possible non-existence of reality, but making my choices based on, the moment present with me right now. What can I do in this moment to, whether or not reality is real, have a good time, better myself, and help those around me?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's the secret. And, is-
1: and it just brings me so much more present. You know, it's funny because. There's sometimes, you know, there's been a few moments in my career specifically where I have had a big success, and I, you know, call my dad or something, and I'm just so excited, so hype, so proud of myself. Mm. And I know my past self would have attributed that to God or the Holy Ghost or some, you know, the Holy Spirit, whatever. But being able to to just exist in my own reality, which is me, and I my efforts got me where I wanted to be and where I was able to feel that excitement and to be able to own that in my own existence is just, it's really empowering and just so beautiful to, to be able to have that retrospective perspective sometimes knowing that I would have attributed it to something else, but no, this is, this is me and my badassery that got me here, you know?
0: Yeah. The, the moment, the moment I did that too, The world just showed up like it was, I'm not saying it was easy. Like there's still shit that happens, but it was easier to feel good about the world around me. It was easier to be considerate of others' happiness and well-being while also fighting for my own needs. Um, Mm -hmm. Being present, as you're pointing to, allowed me to sort of be aware of all the important things that need to be thought of in this moment. Um, I, I'm with you. I, I think the idea of being some sort of, I don't want to say meditation, but some sort of practice that brings you back into this moment on a regular basis, I, I think is so crucial to us human beings developing into something that's better tomorrow than it was today. I agree. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, I know you're a fan of Brene Brown. I know that, uh, a lot of conversations have. uh, happened emanating from you or with you in the space talking about vulnerability and what, what the power of, you know, again, Brene Brown's book, power of vulnerability, what, but what the power of vulnerability is, which is that people get to feel safe. You get to feel safe being all of you and people get to feel safe being all of them. And I'm, I'm just curious if there's been like a story from your own life where embracing vulnerability, uh, Led to a, a deeper connection with another human being or a group of people, whether leaning into vulnerability created uh, maybe a monumental difference in your life at some point. Your thoughts on vulnerability?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it. I kind of take myself back to leaving organized religion. I needed to figure out who the hell I was, what mm. I care about, what my priorities are. and. For a lot of people they end up you know in another organized religion or another type of community like that and for me i found a lot of truth in the enneagram Mm -hmm. um and i don't know if you talk about the enneagram much on on this okay great yeah perfect so i'm an enneagram too and when mm-hmm. I, when I was originally typing myself, I was like, no, I'm an A, I'm a hard ass, you know, I'm a challenger and whatever. I did not want to be a two because of my, pers- you know, cause it seemed like a helper, a, a two was a helper, somebody who is innately intends to help others before themselves. And for me in distancing myself from Mormonism specifically and the gender roles that women take on in that, I did not want to be a two. I did not want to be a helper but taking the time to to read more about it, to read about all the other types and come to terms with, I am absolutely an Enneagram too. That is who I am and that's okay. So learning that-
0: The one wing or the, or the three wing? Which- I mean one, like?
1: one wing. The yeah.
0: serpent, which by the way, in your line of work, I was gonna guess that uh, you you were leaning towards the one wing. I love that. Okay, so cool. Yeah,
1: and it's funny. So So reading more about the Enneagram, kind of gave me some context as to to myself and, and where my vulnerabilities lie, knowing that I love to help people, but also I need a little bit of recognition for that. That was something I read when I read it. I was like, that's not me. But I think about it and I'm realizing if I'm actually being authentic and giving myself space to feel what I'm feeling, I do. I really appreciate. I love helping. I love doing the work. I love interacting with people who are in need of help. But having that thank you is yeah. also very important to me. Yeah. And so it's been really interesting in the sense of being a young queer woman attorney in Utah. Mm-hmm. Now, in law school, there were a bunch of stats always shared about how you know pretty much 50, 50 it, It's a fifty percent men to women ratio in going to law school at this point. Sometimes mm-hmm. a, even a little bit higher on the women's side. Mm-hmm. But I was recently in a training for new lawyers here in Utah, which shared that only 20% of attorneys in Utah are women. Um, and pe- uh, persons of color was like mm-hmm. 6%. It's it's real bad. So there's a heavily predominant white male presence here, as, you know, in the attorney community. Mm-hmm. And so Coming in with, you know, this newly discovered authenticity for myself, but also coming up against the, you know, black, gray, blue suit men, you know, you got your ties, you got your, it's just, it's a whole vibe. It's probably not the best word, but it's almost like a tidal wave that I'm coming up against yeah. as this young queer woman who wants to stand out and wants to be vulnerable and authentic with my clients and the court but at the same time trying to balance that with fitting in with the other attorneys making sure that they don't just write me off but if they do write me off I can try to come back and you know show them who's boss type of thing but in reality it is just such a delicate balance. And so, you know, whether my authenticity shows up in wearing a pink or purple suit or whether that shows up by me, you know, communicating openly with my clients, it's honestly, it's a balance I'm, I'm still grappling with and I probably will grapple with my entire career. Um, and, and it's exciting to be somebody in the field that wants to stand out. But in reality, it's also sometimes nerve wracking to, to be that person who, who wants to not be the blue, you know, not be in a Navy blue suit in the room full of 200 people. So I don't know. It's, it's really, it's such a delicate balance and I would never claim to have a perfect balance there. I, you know, some days I do better, some days I don't, sometimes I give in to wearing just all black and, and trying to communicate like i'm a dude type of thing like it's just yeah. oh it's it's like really internally... really
0: want you to be you it tries to pound you to fit into a box
1: yeah and i don't want to No, but also if it's for the betterment of my clients like i'm willing to fit into that box
0: yeah yeah like, you, you're, you're willing to compromise parts of yourself in order to benefit the people that you're serving or working for
1: yeah yeah. It's interesting. I was actually told by um, somebody in a position of power over me here in my, just in my legal career that I need to decide in every interaction I have really professionally, how authentic I want to be. Mm. And it really took me back because authentic is, is a word to... that, exactly. It's right. very important to me. That's one of the words that I really clung to leaving religion and and discovering myself as being authentic. And so for this person to tell me that I need to choose how authentic I need to be and where to give up my authenticity, it was kind of girl shaking, Mm -hmm. honestly, Mm -hmm. and deciding that, honestly, it, it is interaction by interaction, but having a baseline of, of, of authenticity, um, I think even though that turns some clients or or potential people off from me, like they don't want to work with me because of that. It also opens up the opportunity to work with people who are also authentic and need that authenticity in their life. And so while I know it has, you know, I wear a rainbow ring. I, you know, sometimes I, I don't know, I dress like a bi person a lot, you know? And so, and, and I'm, spunky, you know, whatever word you want to use. But I know that has turned people off to me, but it's important for me to have those who are choosing to interact with me know what they're they're getting in with, you know? Know that this is who I am. If you choose me to be your attorney, this is your attorney. I will fucking fight for you. But also, this is who I am. And I hope that we can vibe well together. And honestly, it has led to so many several just beautiful relationships that I've been able to, to have with clients that I yeah. never would have expected or have had I, I been less authentic.
0: I think most people just want someone to be transparent, honest, authentic with them so that I I know where I stand. I know where you stand. I, I, can, I can make uh, sense of what's going on around me and people aren't just dicking me along. Um, <laughs> you mentioned the Enneagram and I was just, I pulled up, Uh, Type two, the helper, Uh, key motivations, wants to be loved, to express their feelings for others, to be needed and appreciated, to get others to respond to them, to vindicate their claims about themselves. Um, (laughs) In moments of stress, you mentioned that you sort of thought you might be an eight. Uh, In moments of stress, to suddenly become an aggressive, dominating uh, eight. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, when moving in the direction of integration, uh, twos become more self-nurturing, emotionally aware, like healthy fours. Uh, the Enneagram has been uh, important to me. It really has helped me figure out who I was. And I don't even know if I was born an ate. There were things that happened to me when I was a kid, as we all have. Like we all have traumas that happen, shit that happened to us that shouldn't have. Um, and those moments go to great lengths to define us, to define how we protect ourselves to define what things trigger us, but also sort of what personality type we are, uh, I think is impacted by that as well. But when you said, I need, I didn't really know this, but I'm learning it. I need to be affirmed. I need to have uh, some praise come in that says I'm, you know, I'll work my ass off, but I also need to hear you're doing a great job. And we have all these narratives in our world about what it means for somebody to be, Needing that or to be needing 10,000 other things. And we ought to just come to some realization. I hope we do. And I think we're getting there that we're all different. And what we need and what we don't need, what we like, what we don't like, what we want, what we don't want, it simply isn't the same from one person to another. So while some people might be able to easily compromise themselves to get themselves ahead other folks are going to go no like this is who i am i'm going to i'm going to show up as all of me and if that works for others or not that's not my problem and how people navigate those two extremes or find some sort of compromise in the middle is an independent individual choice that every person is making and uh, i don't know like the idea that, of praise that seems like a normal thing that most of us humans need Some of us more than others. Some of us need significant amounts of validation and others of us don't. That doesn't make a story about good or bad. It's just about how we're different than each other. And uh, anyway, I think great points. And I'm, I'm simply trying to highlight that you're hitting the nail on the head that, you know, as you show up at your work, wanting to be your authentic self, there are some things you have to do to compromise to the system, you know. I sit around with friends and my friends, and I'm sorry, I'm a rambler, but I sit around with my friends and my friends will go, Bill, like, I love the space you create. Everybody can just be them. And I'm like, that's not true either. Like, yes, it's more true than out there, but that's not true either. Like, you tell me that, you know, your your kink is that you like wearing a diaper and I'm probably going to become less (laughs) interested in you, you know? And um, we all have like things that other people would judge us for, no matter how much we all want to be authentic with each other. It wouldn't matter. And so on some level, like you have to find people that you can fit in best. You're always going to be hiding parts of yourself. We all want to be as much of ourselves as is acceptable. And we know which parts we can compromise in order to fit in better and get ahead in the world. And we're all making those complex decisions about how we navigate all of that in real time. And we're bound to screw it up and hurt each other as we do so. Anyway, yeah. there that was a lot. Sorry.
1: Truth. No, it's, it's, it's a balance. And I think I, it's fun. I was speaking with one of my good friends who's actually running, running for political office out in Pennsylvania. She kicks so much ass. But we we're talking and, you know, in her line of work, she is a young woman of color in a predominantly older community. And she has to, you know, we were just discussing this, this really delicate balance of being authentic. Well, giving you know curbing to the system where we where we can and like it, it feels kind of disgusting to acknowledge that there is part of you that has to conform but if that confirmation allows you to meet your goals while still protecting the authentic parts of yourself that you will not that are not negotiable I think that's a way to to try to deal with that in in the sense that if your goals helping you know helping my friend if she attains her goals she will be in a position of power to be able to help so many people with an open liberal mind and for me if i'm going to put my foot down and be not conform at all to the system around me i'm going to lose opportunities to grow in my career i'm going to lose opportunities to to work with certain clients mm. but but maintaining the authentic parks that are important to me, like my queerness, I'm not going to, I, you know, sometimes I don't like tell my clients that, but yeah. if it comes up, I'll acknowledge it. Yeah. I have a rainbow sticker on the back of my phone and my rainbow ring. Like it's not something I'm trying to hide, yeah. but it's something that I absolutely will be honest with them if they ask me. Yeah, totally. It's just important to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I yeah. also
1: want to want to reach my goals, and I want to succeed and get into one yeah. of those leadership positions that can have greater effect. Yeah, and further reach.
0: Yeah, we're all negotiating that in complex ways. Like we're all trying to be as much of ourselves as we can, knowing that the world won't quite accept us as as we are. And mm-hmm. we're all trying to figure out, like, like okay, I got up today. I'm going to try to be a little bit more me and see. See how that goes. And if it gets trampled on, we pull back. If it's well received, maybe we extend ourselves further. And then we're constantly pulling back and leaning in over and over again throughout even just a single day. Yeah. Um I love it. Definitely true. Um imperfection. We're all flawed. We're all we're all fucking up. We're all making mistakes and we're all getting like things right. And every person has uh, different de- degrees of education. Everybody has different degrees of what their parents raised them to think or to believe about how the world works. We've all had different traumas happen to us. Inevitably, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to hurt people. Sometimes sometimes being in shared space with other human beings, you're being good and healthy and responsible. They're being good and healthy and responsible, but the two of you are so different that it's inevitable you bump into each other without anybody intentionally being malicious. And that happens all the time, especially in relationships. When you share a home with somebody or share a bed with somebody, um, you're going to constantly bump into each other even when you don't intend to. But there are moments that there are either, A, really unhealthy people or people who are really good who happen to be unhealthy in a moment, and they bump into us and hurt us, or we bump into them and we hurt them. Inevitably, we're going to make mistakes. And I'm, I'm just curious how you've dealt with what you perceive as your own imperfections and maybe how you've used imperfections as a strength Mm. uh, in your life, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, honestly, (laughs) my imperfection story, you know, obviously we have a lot of shit you're dealing with as kids and, but, when I was in middle school, eighth or ninth grade, I received, I, I was a straight A student until then, not too long of a track record, obviously at that point. But up until that point, i it was so important to me to get straight A's. And in ninth grade math, I got a C minus. And that forever was going to be on my high school transcript and whatever, right? Forever starting now, I will not have a 4.0 in high school. That was earth shattering at the time. But honestly, probably one of the best things that has ever happened happened to me mm-hmm. in the sense that I had to deal with the fact that because of this one class, one test, whatever, I will not have a perfect record moving forward. And so that gave me space to fucking breathe, man. That gave me space to know that okay, well, if it's not going to be perfect doesn't have to be close even you know like it just gave me space to 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 recognize that I you know for example struggled with math, you know and that's just part of my reality. And that was so important for me going into especially higher education um, knowing that you know they say Cs get degrees but honestly I needed a balance of that to go to to get me through the process. I actually went to law school during COVID and my my law school class was um like the most affected time wise um as far as COVID goes with online learning. And there's a reason they don't allow any accredited online law schools because it's just not the way to do it. Mm. And so I'm I'm continuously grateful that I had that that expectation of of non perfection for myself going into that, because it gave me space to do enough to get through and learn what I needed to learn, put my energy where I needed, but I didn't necessarily need to perform perfectly when it came to grades. Mm. And honestly, that I think is (laughs) not that I'm, I'm an attorney who got, you know, my degree on C's, but like, honestly, I kind of did I, I was able to not focus on the perfection, but focus on the points mm. and what I found important in class and in my learning process. Mm. And honestly, it got me where I wanted to go. And that is so amazing to me. And I've honestly dealt with a lot of imposter syndrome throughout my, my legal career, especially mm. going through law school. I, I I originally thought it would be so cool to be a lawyer when i was like 7 i was so young mm. but i truly i had heard about how hard it was to go to law school or whatever the bar whatever i had perceived at that time i had internalized that i myself was not smart enough to to make it and to like obviously i'm not smart enough to do whatever this hard thing is and so i wrote it off i thought i was going to be a therapist and i you know put myself on that track and when i I was, you know, almost done with my undergrad and my dad had asked me, he's like, hey, have you thought about law? I'm like, yeah, I've thought about law. I I think that'd be really fun, but like, that's not for me. I can't do that, obviously. And he, you know, gave me a little pep talk and I took some time to think about it and realize like, okay, if I, I I don't need to do this perfectly. I don't need to come out top of my class. I don't need to be on law review. Like all of these things that communicate high success or perfection in the legal community. That's not what's important to me. What's important to me is to get through the process and get to a point where I can start helping people directly. Mm -hmm. And. I'm pretty sure I would hope that my clients don't give a shit what my grades were, because that doesn't matter. That level, that definition of perfection has very little weight when it comes into actual practice. And so allowing myself to be imperfect is, Mm. has given me space to be a good attorney, I think, and be a good person. It's so interesting growing up in the organized religion that we did that 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 prioritizes and you know screams perfection at you and while most religious people most Mormons would acknowledge like yeah you yeah, know but perfection's not actually attainable I you know try to be perfect but that's never going to happen why are we trying to be perfect that literally cannot happen Define your I, I think it's so
2: such a false and yeah.
1: yeah to define your own standards and and go from there to to try to strive for this level of perfection that's extremely subjective mm. anyway it sounds like perfection is the subjective standard but it's it's mm. just not and so to to spend time and energy striving to get there when really if you're reaching your priorities i just it's been a gift to me to not focus on on trying to be perfect. It's funny, one of my brothers did not have a similar experience. He's still trying to strive for this perfection in his schooling experience. And it's draining. I just am very appreciative of myself <laughs> in giving myself space to be, not even try to be perfect. Fuck that. Yeah. It's not real.
0: I love that. Um I was a, a C student throughout school from kindergarten to Through college. Uh, I was just a C student. That's all I was. And I see myself as intelligent, but I just didn't work. I I didn't want to, I didn't want to do the things they said I needed to do to get the A. Like you, I found the things I was interested in and like I loved history. And I read, you know, I read books on Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King, and I stored a ton of information in my head, but it just wasn't the uh sequence of information that they said you needed to have to be the great student. Mm -hmm. And and I'm lucky again, it could have gone, it could have gone in a different direction. I could be doing a job. I don't like, I could be uh, showing up in the world, having to, because of that lack of putting the effort in to get the A's uh, I could have ended up being, um, having a life around me that I wouldn't like. I'm lucky in that I've been able to use my way of thinking and the things that I was interested in and putting information in my head. And I've been able to turn it into a way to help people and to have really cool conversations.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: um, I'm all for, we live in a world today. I, I You know, you open up YouTube or TikTok, uh, social media influencers, uh, which I'm one of those uh, on a really tiny scale in this small little niche, <laughs> niche within a niche, um, but I am. And we live in a world today in 2023 where if somebody wants to, If they don't want to do their job anymore and they're willing to figure it out, they can come up with a niche of things to speak about or to video or, you know, and you can go out and make a living doing something other than what the world wishes you were doing. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool. My kid was like, dad, come on. It's not real. I said, trust me. I said, you could go down to the fucking dog park three blocks down the street. Record dogs for an hour, put it on YouTube with you dubbing over voices of saying things that would match what the dogs are doing and put out a hundred videos and you'll fucking sooner or later, if you do it right, you do it better and you do it, you know, you do it well, you'll have a hundred thousand followers and be making, you know, 10 grand a month on YouTube. We live in a world today where you really can not do things the way the system said you had to do it and if you look back all the way through time it were it was the people who bucked the system in the first place who seemed to get ahead often if they if they were smart about how they did it and so i just want to say kudos to you for going look i'm going into a certain kind of law i'm going i know what it takes to help people in this space i'm going to focus on storing those pieces of information in my head and the periphery is simply I need to do enough of it to get through, to be able to have the degree behind you on the wall, and to be able to help people. Um, kudos to you for being smart enough to know you didn't have to be perfect. You only needed to be good at the things that would help the people <laughs> you would serve. So good to you. Thank you. you. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Um, you may be more than most people you go into a courtroom, the judge, maybe the judge likes you. Maybe the judge doesn't, maybe the other lawyer thinks shit about you. Maybe they don't, but you sort of are paid to manage the conflict for the person you represent. And then their lawyer is paid to manage the conflict that that their client represents. And so you come into a courtroom with another lawyer, with a jury, with a judge, And there's all this uh, human conflict dilemma going on. What are your thoughts on conflict resolution? What are your thoughts on getting along with people that you disagree with? What are your thoughts on how to manage conflict in a way that doesn't hurt the other person and doesn't allow them to hurt you?
1: Yeah, I mean, the my answer might feel obvious, but it. My role has allowed me to, to practice remaining objective, you know, remembering, trying to remember, especially in those moments where we're in the courtroom, I will note there are no jury trials in Utah for family law matters. So I'm yeah. never in front of the jury for, for now, at least. Um, but remembering that, that this isn't about me, um, specifically in my role, this is me advocating on my client's behalf. And for me to personally get caught up in the the drama and the issues, cause there is never yeah. lacking drama in yeah. my view. Yeah. Um, but honestly, you know, in general conflict conflict less grows, in
0: copyright law. There's probably less in cop maybe in copyright law, but in family law there. has <laughs> is there, gotta be drama every day.
1: It there, there is, and yeah. honestly, it's very exciting. Sometimes it gets a little exhausting, yeah. But, but honestly, trying a, a, and I know that it's really hard and nearly impossible, but trying to remain objective in those situations of conflict. Mm. If there is a direct conflict situation, like where it is presently somebody is upset with me, whether it's the other attorney, whether it's the other party, they're upset with me taking a fucking step away is so underrated. Mm. Like whether that is myself dealing with the conflict, whether that's my client who is asking me for advice because she still lives in the house with her current spouse that they're divorcing presently. Mm. It's taking a step away, allowing yourself to, to try to approach it objectively. And And again, I know that's nearly impossible advice in the sense that, conflict is in, innately subjective. You are feeling conflict because of some perception or s- subjective feeling that you have. But if you're actually looking for resolution, I think the efforts are, are, are attainable. I think you can tr- at least attempt and 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 also acknowledging that conflict resolution is not on one person. Mm-hmm. It's just not. It's not on me. It's not on my client. It is a whole team effort and to also give your safe I would say myself or my you know a client if I'm talking to them giving yourself space to acknowledge that even if you put efforts in to resolve this conflict there's a chance that it's not going to work and that doesn't mean it's on you yeah
0: yeah I'm, I'm learning there a similar, some conflicts
1: that just don't get resolved
0: I'm learning a similar thing I'm in therapy right now I recommend it for everybody everybody should have a therapist Uh, I've got a really good one. If you live in Southern Utah and you want to know who my therapist is, reach out to me. I'll, I'll share it. But Really good therapist. And uh, he, 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 his modality is this thing I've talked about on the podcast before called IFS internal family systems, which is you, Mm. treat the parts of you inside as if it's one big family. And there is conflict. I got parts that want to do the world one way. And I've got parts that want to do the other. And we all do it. We all go, well, there's a part of me that would like to go out tonight, but there's a part of me that would like to stay home. And in reality, it really is two different parts of you. And when you give them a chance, you, the grounded, self-led person, when you are present, you mentioned that earlier, when you're present and aware, like, oh, like, I'm just the consciousness behind the eyes. I'm not all of these things that my parts are carrying around. You can sort of be the mediator. And as you said, be objective, be grounded, be present. and you can give a mental space for the conflicting parts of you to work out things, to be heard, to work out issues um, without you getting dragged into the lizard brain, emotional heightened state that none of us handle conflict. Well, in. the moment conflict starts to occur, almost all of us go into that fight or flight space. Uh, it's not the critical thinking space of our brain. <laughs> and as you're, pointing out to sort of take a pause you mentioned to be objective you mentioned to sort of like let me take a break from this for a minute i don't have the emotional capacity to show up grounded and present and centered here so i'm gonna just take a breather i'm gonna request some sort of time out here and take a breather and again in law you can't do that necessarily in the courtroom all the time but <laughs> there has to be moments where even there you're like that caught me off guard i'm feeling some shit it would be in a perfect world i'd like to step away for a minute um 100% but really taking a breather and allowing our brain to settle down it goes back to you know sapiens goes back to 200,000 years ago 100,000 years ago when a when a lion came out of the woods we panicked ah you know and the moment things were okay again we could go back to the fire with our with our friends and, and our family members sit down settle our breathing down tell the story get <laughs> validation from the group, you know, and the slow breathing would get us out of our lizard brain and we could get back to being okay. In today's world, we're just constantly moving. And there isn't these moments of like, I just need to stop and just center myself and reground. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really is a big deal for people. If, they, if you're, if you're in lizard brain, if you're like, no, if I just argue this out with my wife for 10 more minutes, it will, we'll get to the bottom of it. We'll solve it. No, you won't.
2: Tomorrow
0: when you guys both put some time behind it and you're, you're dis you are distant from the event. Um, But people don't learn those kinds of things easy. And so I'm really glad that you pointed those out. Um, Last question. And then I'll let you get back uh, to your day. Um, Healthy boundaries. What are, have you had to set boundaries with people? And I'm sure you have. And, What does it mean to you to set healthy boundaries and uh, any thoughts on what healthy boundaries look like or how people could do better to have boundaries in their life?
1: Yeah. Well, the thing about boundaries that I think is really important to acknowledge, not that I'm an expert on the matter, but I've just learned in my own experience is that they change and they evolve. And it's important to keep whoever you're communicating your boundaries to updated on those ebbs and flows and also knowing that it's okay for your boundaries to ebb and flow it's difficult because it's hard to set boundaries for a lot of people myself included whether that's in your personal life whether that's professionally whether that's within your specific you know your significant other or your kids setting boundaries allows me to give myself space right that's the inherent goal of boundaries, at least for myself, is to give myself space in whatever I need, it, it, including I need, you know, setting the boundary. I need to take a step away from this conflict. I need to step out of the room of this client meeting for a second. I need to take a step outside with my dog and just take a walk really quick. Right. Um, I mean, I, lots of examples of, of boundaries within my job, like telling clients, I don't work on the weekends, please, you know, unless if it's a specific circumstance, like don't expect to reach me on the weekends. Don't expect to reach me after 7 p.m. at night, things like that. And it's it's actually really nice. There is a rule in the Utah Rules of Professional Conduct that lawyers are, are required to adhere to. There's a rule that says, you need to take care of yourself. You need to take enough time in your personal life because we know statistically, that that directly affects your advocacy. And so I love having, you know, the backup of the of, of the legitimacy of this rule to to give myself enough personal time and boundaries, but setting boundaries is hard and I'm really not good at it sometimes. But remembering trying to remind myself that it's a practice setting boundaries, especially for myself, it's not something I was very good at growing up. Not something I was good at on my mission by any means. Um but learning what my, my, my intentions for boundaries are taking my time to set them if I need to, or setting them very quickly and harshly, if that's what's needed in the moment and amending after the fact, you know, but I think a lot of people in my experience, and from what they tell me, it's, it's such a a cool position to to be in this, this role for people where they they have, I mean, there's attorney client privilege. We're not talking about the, the issues outside of our conversation, right? And so to know so intimately where people's fears and anxieties and insecurities lie, and why for some people it has taken them years to set a boundary with their spouse or their kids or whoever we're talking about, I think boundaries are worth a shot. If you're not used to setting them, I would recommend. Just try in one, see how it goes, <laughs> and and just knowing that you can change them, knowing that it's an ebb and flow of your own personal needs and all the other factors that come into boundaries. Hmm. Um, but while I'm not no expert, not a professional at setting boundaries by any means, I, I do think it's really important to to try to remember to you know even if it's not an obvious boundary that you need to set. Try to remember that that you have the option to set boundaries with people, to put up lines and say, please don't cross this line. I think that boundaries are, are, you know, some people weaponize the word boundary, which is wrong, but but having the option to communicate, the more common it is to use the word boundary or whatever word you use, to the more common it is that you are communicating those to the people around you. I think the more Okay, society's going to be with boundaries. And if you're not cool with my boundaries, fuck you, type of thing. You know, I don't want to work with you anyway.
0: (laughs) Everybody has a right to them. And everybody at one point in their life or another will need to set boundaries because the people that they're interacting with don't know how to stay inside their own lines. And we all have a responsibility to respect this, the spaces of each other that some people need uh, and have a right to uh, some space being protected around them. And, and other folks seem to not really care about encroaching into your space Yeah, in lots of different ways. And everybody has a right to boundaries. And I, I think you said something really great, which is, you know, if you, if you're not really a boundary setter, but you're in your head, listen to this conversation and you wish you had some boundaries in your life with some of the people in your life have boundaries. In fact, I had friends over last night and uh, this female, when she left uh, the church, she would still reach out and call uh, one of her parents. And that parent would inevitably in every conversation, ask her about if she's been to church recently
2: Hmm.
0: and she hadn't been to church in years. Right. And we were talking about that and she, uh, She's in the middle of going like, do I I know there's risk of the relationship maybe I set a boundary though and it feels like I need one'm I'm, I'm nervous about what that means. but on some level you I think you always have a right to tell another person, hey, you're keeping me from being able to connect with you in a way that's healthy for me. and I feel it's really unhealthy when you do X, Y Z and our relationship is gonna work better for me if you'll respect these boundaries. If you'll not not make church part of our relationship, for instance.
1: It's almost an act of love to communicate boundaries, especially to those in your immediate circle, Mm. to allow them information on where you're comfortable and where you're not. Because otherwise, how the fuck are they supposed to know?
0: Yeah. And And some
1: people don't care, but some people really do. And so to be able to communicate that to them and give them instructions, a lot of people don't intuitively know. And how would they know? Exactly where you're comfortable and where you're not. Even yeah. if you are married for 20 plus years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you set boundaries, it it may, and probably doesn't go the way you hope it goes. It probably goes something other. And inevitably you will set boundaries with some people who take that offense at that practically. And, behave in more unhealthy ways that you wouldn't want them to. So I I totally get like why some people don't in order to maintain a relationship that isn't healthy, that is important to them. And I understand why people do when the, the getting bumped into is just more than they want to deal with and it isn't necessary for them to deal with it. And, uh, but I think setting boundaries is another complex issue in human interaction that, uh, isn't, isn't really a simple thing to solve. And so I know why people negotiate all that differently, but it, I think you give a great idea, which is try it. Like everybody needs them. Try it. And uh, I know in the last few years, I've even within my marriage, like I've set boundaries with my wife that now she understands where I'm coming from. As you said, it's a gift. You give somebody. Um, and she set boundaries with me. Like, Hey, I don't like it when you do this thing. I don't want you to do that thing anymore. And I know that that thing hurts her. And so I'm going to stop doing it. And if I don't stop doing it, then I'm the dick, you know, and, and that's kind of the one golden rule anymore for me and my friends is just don't be a dick. Don't be a dick.
2: <laughs> Amen.
0: Anything else you want to say before we close up? I really appreciate the time we've gone just a touch long, so I want to let you go, but um, I really appreciate all that uh, all that you've shared today.
1: Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's really great chatting with you, Bill. I love the opportunity to be here and share my perspective. Um I love my job and honestly if any of your listeners are in need of a family law attorney or a conversation with one mm-hmm. here in Utah I know mixed faith marriages are it, it, it inevitably is a is a factor in yeah. whether you're staying together or separating yeah. and I would love to chat with anybody and and help them through this process.
0: How can people um, find you?
1: Yeah, so I'll leave my email I'll have you leave my email in the in the notes. And if you, if any of your listeners want to shoot me an email, I'd love to set a time to chat with them, whether we're conversing by text, email, or phone call, whatever they're more comfortable with. I'm here for it.
0: Okay, folks. So if you are in need of some family law in Utah with somebody who has a, uh, awakened perspective, (laughs) uh, we'll have the email here for Amanda and we'll uh, give you guys a chance to reach out. And, um, I know you well enough to know that Folks, if you do reach out, you're going to get somebody who treats you like a human being with compassion and uh, knows their craft uh, well enough to be of superior service to you. So thank you so much for your time today and appreciate uh, all that you do in the world to make it a better place.
1: Thanks, Bill. Same to you.
0: Okay, Take it easy.
1: Thanks.